There's a podcast that sure all that rocks hard is gold, and they're climbing the stairway to eleven. When they get there, they know the record stores have all closed, but online they can get what they came Welcome to the second episode of the Stairway to Eleven podcast. My name is George. This is John. And I'm TR. Thanks to everyone that listened to the first episode and gave us comments and feedback. It was really great to hear. We appreciate everybody that gave it a listen and hopefully we'll continue to provide something that you enjoy listening to. So this episode, we didn't intend it to be this way, but we have an 80s centric episode for you. All three albums were released in the 1980s. So, early 80s for that matter. Indeed. 80 and 82, I believe, yep. are the two years yes. where all three of these albums were released. The first album of the evening was my pick, and this was the band known as The Cure and their fourth album, Pornography, released on May 4th, 1982. This album was fueled by drugs, infighting, and Robert Smith's depression. So see, good things can come from bad things. <laughs> when I was in high school, I really didn't like The Cure. I was pretty much a metal guy. And anything like not metal, particularly stuff like The Cure, was something that I railed against. And so it wasn't until after high school that I, a friend of mine actually, I was like trying to expand my horizons and I was like, Hey, what are some things you think I should listen to? And he said, check out this album, staring at the sea, a compilation of early cure songs. And I was immediately hooked. I was like, this is cool. I like the drum and the bass. And I took it from there. The newer stuff, the more recent stuff like fascination street and love song and all the stuff that they were really popular for. It's all right, but it didn't, I didn't like it as much as the early stuff. And when I discovered this album, this was the perfect blend of the early years of The Cure, where there's a lot of drum and bass work that's really cool, with the haunting vocals, and where it wasn't quite as ethereal, even though it is very ethereal, but it's not as fluffy as latter era Cure to me. It's a little bit darker, a little more dangerous. So ultimately, this is my favorite Cure album, and I'm curious to see what you guys are going to say about it. So without further ado, let us go track by track through the Cure's pornography album. The first track is called 100 Years, and it's got this like drum machine staccato type sound and trippy guitars, this immediate ethereal feeling. As I mentioned before, the vocals are a bit stronger than the latter era style. Not stronger, but just like more insistent. They're way more creepy than the early stuff. And this is one of my favorite tracks on the album. I thought it was a great track to start the album and set the tone. There's these haunting ghostly melodies. Sounds to me kind of like a lost soul haunting the moors. 
funny you should say that this sets the tone because that that exact that was exactly what I thought about this song. It it's got this cool riff that that starts off like the guitar riff is pretty cool, and then the, you couldn't set the tone more by starting with a lyric that says, it doesn't matter if we all die. <laughs> so that pretty much sets the tone right there. And it's, it's like, not a okay. happy album. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's, and f- from my standpoint, okay, this is an album I never listened to. Okay. This is a band I obviously was familiar with and certainly knew certain songs by this band, but I don't think I ever heard this album i don't recall really any of these songs so it just wasn't anything i ever listened to and i think i know why i was too happy to listen to this (laughs) when i was in school and like growing up and even now i just i'm just not depressed enough to listen to this (laughs) so it really isn't something that like i get it it definitely sets a mood and i can see if you were really like going through some dark stuff you'd want to curl up with this but it, it just it's a little too dark for me but, i mean I get that but at the same time i find it chill it's cool oh, yeah. it's oh, meditative yes. and relaxing it, 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 and it sets an atmosphere that it definitely gives you an atmosphere and a kind of a mood that is pretty much pervasive through the whole album there's no there's very little on this. Like the whole album feels consistent throughout in terms of the mood and the style and the sound. So it's not like you're going to get some kind of offbeat weird thing that that comes in. It's, oh, this is the happy song on the album. It's all the same. Not the same in terms of it doesn't all sound the same, but it definitely has a theme that like really takes you through the whole album. It has doom um, and gloom. Yes. Country and Western. Doom and Gloom. <laughs> We've got both kinds. Yeah. All right. So, for what I remember this song, yeah, it's Doom and Gloom. I'll be giving away, I guess, all my notes as we go along, as opposed to something at the end, which is fine. What I like is that it's not the Doom and Gloom pre-emo sound that... I feel like they contributed to, while they may not be, but they definitely contributed to that in their later era period stuff of the 80s that was MTV bound. I think this is a cornerstone of goth. Yes. And yeah, it's doomy and gloomy, but it's not that doomy and gloomy and oh, poor, woe is me. I don't know if they necessarily sang those types of songs because I don't know them that well. However, I think they probably influenced a lot of those bands that followed afterwards. They're one of those bands that everybody followed. Like when Nirvana came out, everybody went grunge and a lot of bands that weren't original sounded like Nirvana. When, I don't know, Sisters of Mercy, another goth type band, when they came out to this day, there are still hundreds of bands a year, probably putting out albums that sound just like the Sisters of Mercy. And The Cure is another one of those bands where there are still bands putting out music that are in this same exact style as The Cure. So they clearly made an impact. I agree. And TR said, I come from the same. I was not into this band early on. And that's probably because when I first heard them, it was all of their kind of pop singles. And they weren't necessarily pop, but they were pop because they were getting radio play. So I would have never gone back to listen to this because I would have been like, yeah. That's not happening based on 
the later songs. So you mentioned him as an influence of goth, but the funny thing is that like Bauhaus and Peter Murphy and The Cure, they are obviously significantly influenced by David Bowie's late 70s material because there's a lot of post-punk in this too. Maybe not written like a punk song, but you can hear it. And I hear a lot of Bowie influence in there, but it's them. It's They're not mimicking him at all. You could just hear the things that he was doing that they picked up on and used as influence for themselves. And in the process, as opposed to mimicking, they created their own sound yeah. or they helped create a genre sound, which would be goth at some point. Yeah, no, I definitely agree. There's got to be some Bowie influence in there. Well, certainly isn't the next song, but I don't want to jump <laughs> to the next song just yet. Mm-hmm. I definitely hear it in the next song. All right. Well, that next song is called A Short Term Effect. This song, I really like the drum and bass interplay holding the foundation while the guitar sort of is in the background and like winds in and out. A lot of the stuff on here is very drum and bass oriented, which is what a lot of their earlier stuff was like too. And then the the vocals on this one kind of show a little bit of a hint of the more commercial style to come, but it's still a very cool song, I think. Yeah. yeah I actually, I'm sorry. I actually like this one the most on the album personally. Okay. And that guitar work you were talking about, I think of, it reminds me of Scary Monsters from Bowie Uh off the album, Scary Monsters. There's just a similar kind of play to it that reminds me of it. not saying it sounds like it. it, I get that kind of feeling when I hear it. Cool. Yeah, and George, so I didn't really write a whole lot for this particular song, but the point you just raised is one of of my frustrations with this album. As a as a guitar fan, I feel like the guitar got buried on this album. And I think it's unfortunate because there are songs on this album where the guitar is doing some pretty cool stuff. And it's it sounds like it's intentionally buried. And it's I think I would have liked this more if it if that hadn't been the case. There are a couple songs on this album, and I I won't jump ahead, but where they actually do bring out some really cool guitar work and you hear it and it's like, Oh, that's cool. And it's just on this one little part. And it's where was that for the whole song? Why didn't they have that for the whole thing? And so that was frustrating to me as someone who really likes guitar oriented music, like rock music. We need the TR remix. Yeah. And that was another thing. So one of the other, one of my other frustrations with this album in terms of the way that it was recorded is the drums. Like the drums have a very splashy sound on this album and uh, they just don't, I get it. It's part of the tone of the album, but I think that's another element of this album that I just don't care for is just the way the drums were recorded and the kind of the splashy way that they sound. Splashy. I'll have to go back and listen. I, I, I don't know how to, it's very hard to describe, but I was trying to identify. And so that's another, like I was talking to you guys earlier about one of the things that I am enjoying about this podcast is I'm as we look at these albums and some of which I'm sure I won't have listened to much like this album here I'm identifying the things the reasons why maybe I don't like something or the reasons why I do like something and when you actually have to quantify it, it it's it's not as simple or as straightforward as you might think and this album was one of those where initially I was trying to figure out, okay, why don't I like this? Like, <laughs> I, I don't want to say I don't like it, but overall I would 
I don't think I would really reach for this album a lot. I honestly, it's not the same, the style of music that I particularly care for, but there are definitely cool elements to this album. Like I said, there are guitar parts that I really like about it. And there's like the mood and the atmosphere, the, the lyrics that, that are nebulous, right? The lyrics really don't mean anything, right? They're, they're, it's impressionist painting, right? There's no, there's, it's like there are words and they set a tone, but in terms of what it really means, I read the lyrics on these songs and yeah, you get a kind of an impression, but it doesn't really mean anything. And so I'm okay with that because look, I like early yes. And you listen to John Anderson and his vocals and they don't mean anything. It's wordplay and it's the way words sound and the impression that the words give that, that really paint the picture. And that's happening here, but it's just, I don't know, I guess it's too depressing for me i don't know what are words for if no one's listening anymore that's a great album yeah i've heard that a bunch of times this last week and i'm like oh yeah got that stuck in my head all right let's move on to the next song this is the hanging garden this is the quote unquote hit off of this album it's the one that's much of a hit (laughs) i think a lot of cure people know this song and that's not what I was going to say. Oh, it's oh. not your traditional radio friendly hit. No. Oh, I think, yeah. I think it's true. a, I think it's a classic amongst cure fans. Yes. Who are, I don't are know if it charted or anything like that. I'd have to right. look, but right. this is another one that I really like, which isn't surprising given because I've heard it just so many times. This is the one song off this album that I knew before coming to the album. Again, the bass and the drums I think are really cool. They provide an urgency to the song. The lyrics are kind of mysterious and the vocals are almost commanding. When Robert does like the faraway vocals in the chorus, it also makes it ominous. It's like half of the vocals in the chorus are like in the background. And in the hanging garden, spooky. I don't know. Altogether, it makes for a really cool, unique kind of track, I think. Yeah, this was my favorite song on the album. Excellent. And I like the echoey vocals like you were talking about. I like that the drums were mostly the toms. Mm-hmm. Um, I agree that gave it a lot of urgency and it, that kind of took away the splash for me. So that I was good with that. And to me, this kind of sounded like an old U2 song. Yeah, I can hear that. I don't know. It just, it's, U2 could have done this. Something on the first couple albums. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like that time, time frame, it was, it sounded very similar to that to me, which I like, I love that stuff. And so, yeah, this was my favorite song on the album. Yeah, I don't have many notes on individual songs, but I would agree. I thought for a one, two, three punch on to start an album, it's actually very good for someone who doesn't really know much about them. I liked all three songs, and I don't have much to add to it other than I did research to see what songs off this kind of show up on compilation albums or what are fan favorites and you really don't see these songs showing up maybe the hanging garden you'll see on stuff yeah and so that's why it says a lot to me about the album be so highly rated and you don't see a lot of their songs showing up on those quote-unquote casual fan compilations it's more of an underground kind of album i think but for like real fans that aren't just casual radio listeners this is probably something that is very treasured 
Yeah. I think. So I would describe this album, and this goes out to all our extreme metal fans. This is their still life. Opeth. <laughs> Definitely. About it? I because agree. <laughs> all the songs are good and for what they are. And that, I'm being that for both albums, but there's not one song, maybe one song stands out name wise. But if you ask the casual fan or like the semi-casual fan, you know, I like the band. I've got six or seven of their albums. They wouldn't reach for this one first because they're reaching for that one that they got hooked in on because of some popular song. This album is, or what's the album I always quote to you, George? And you're always like, but it's got two hit songs on it. Uh, uh, Pet Sounds by the Beach Boys. Oh, oh, sorry. Yeah, it has two big songs, but then the rest of it, Hardcore fans know that, and that's why it's so beloved, as opposed to their other albums that have six or seven songs about surfing and they're all popular and everybody knows them. <laughs> yeah. And so I, I see all these albums are similar. They have one or two that stand out, and then the rest are just strong foundational songs for the band's core. Cool. So next we have the track Siamese Twins. This one brings the tempo down a little bit after the frantic quality of Hanging Garden. It's definitely more morose and dreamy, introspective, atmospheric, and I guess introspective and atmospheric probably qualifies for most of the songs on this album. But (laughs) this one definitely brings the mood and tempo down a bit. It's okay. It's not one of my favorites. I didn't really have any comments about this one. All right. Although I did read up on it a little, and it was supposed to be like some... Like lyrically, I guess it has to do with lovers entwined or something like this. And so well, that doesn't know, surprise it just, me. It's funny, though, because it's it's so depressing. <laughs> like, there's nothing uplifting or loving about it at all. It just I think it's his terrible experiences with love or something. Yeah. <laughs> so, Even in like Hollywood movies and stuff, people will, like break up with somebody and they'll make some comment about going back to their room and listening to The Cure. That's <laughs> right. It's it's Yeah. It just fits that. So the next track is called The Figurehead. A little more up-tempo, but still kind of dreamlike, hypnotic, floating, mournful spirit vibe. I'm channeling my inner Marcus on here, which is clearly the tone of the album. Swirling guitars and pounding drums. Robert remains sad and apparently dirty based on the repeated line, I will never be clean again. (laughs) He says that over and over. I will never be clean again. So... I don't know what the figurehead title is about. I didn't look up the meanings. I don't know if you did. No, I, yeah, I look, I, as I listened to this, I looked at the lyrics, which is different for me because honestly, when I listen to music, I don't listen to the lyrics. And, and this is something that I discovered a little more about myself. There are songs that I've heard thousands of times, but I couldn't tell you the words because I don't listen to the words. Like I'm more focused on the music itself. The melody. Yeah. And my buddy Dave, I was talking to him about this and he's just like, oh, dude, I'm all about the words. I'm focused on the lyrics. And I'm like, wow, I, I, that that's like kind of the opposite of what I do. I, I really typically don't listen to the lyrics. I listen to the overall sound of the song. And yeah, I hear the words and I get an impression of what the words are telling me. But overall, I'm not in it for the lyrics. I'm in right. it for the music. This album is because it's setting a tone and it's impressionistic and the lyrics really don't mean a whole lot. They mean something in terms of they're setting the tone by saying, yeah, you know, it doesn't matter if we all die, you know, I'm never going to be clean again. You're getting these sounds and you're hearing these things, but you're, if you listen to the lyrics and you actually read them, 
it, it's difficult to, it, it's just impressions. It's just, it, it's not really telling a story per se. Emoting without purpose. Exactly. That's one of the things I actually like about this album, that it, that the lyrics, they set a tone, but they, but it's not important what they're actually saying because you get enough of an impression from a few of the words. But if you really don't know what he's talking about, it, it the, the sound of the song will pretty much tell you what the song is about. I actually kind of like that element of this because you don't need to know what he's saying to get what an impression of what the song is about or what you're supposed to feel or what the tone of it is. And so in for that, in that regard, I really, I like what they're doing. It's funny because when you talk about not really being into the lyrics and your friend was like, oh, I'm all about the lyrics. I'm kind of both. And it depends on what I'm listening to. If I'm listening to death metal, could not care what the lyrics are about. <laughs> yeah, tell me what they're saying. Yeah, I could look up the lyrics. But yeah. most of the time, it's something dumb. I don't care. It's more about the impact and the aggressive nature of the music. But then when it comes to rock music, I tend to be more of a lyric person. I mean, sure, there's plenty of rock songs that I love that I don't care what the lyrics say. But they're, you'll find that my favorite songs are the ones that I have a lyrical connection to. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm a toss up on this because when it comes to seventies and eighties music and it comes to lyrics, I generally don't like them because they're usually about phallic symbols. Mm. And I find that to be just the reason I say that is because today love gun from kiss came out. <laughs> I was going to say kiss <laughs> and the radio in the car. <laughs> no, I was going to originally go with white snake, but I went with kiss right. <laughs> and Paul Stanley yells out, that's not a pistol. That's my love gun right before the song starts. Cause it was a live version. And I thought you made millions of dollars talking about little Paul. And it just, so when it comes to lyrics, I have a little bit of both of you guys. Yeah. Generally I don't pay attention to lyrics because I played an instrument and I didn't sing. So my focus was on my instrument and being part of the back line of a band but I wonder, Tiara, is your friend a musician at all that likes lyrics? No. So that's the thing. You know, he's I, like, I can't read music. I don't play music. And so that's why I think he gravitates to the words. I Whereas, think so. Like as a musician myself, like my focus is more like what's going on musically here. And that's right. what kind of reaches me more. That's a very, that that's that whole concept of, yeah, there are people out there who are very focused on the words and they want to sing along or they're very they're the, the message of the song is more important to them than the music of the song. And which is, I don't know, to me is like, I listen to a lot of instrumental music. I love instrumental music. And a lot of people that I know that are like, that listen to regular music with vocals can't understand like why I would want to listen to something without a singer different strokes for different folks, right? Everybody's got their way of kind of processing music and the way that they like to take that in or what reaches them. And so it's interesting to me because that's not something that I typically do in terms of like really paying attention to the lyrics, but you have no soul. I guess, but there are people out there that's very important to, and I get that. Yeah, they're called power metal fans. <laughs> Yep. Yep. <laughs> and just like that, 
it just ends, right? Yeah. That's, Why not? that's yeah. Power metal. Yeah. Yeah, that's, yeah. Pretty much. It. Yeah. He summed it up. What do you want to say? <laughs> yeah. The music all sounds the same and they just sing about <laughs> riding waves of glory to Mahala <laughs> on the backs of dragons. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That they slayed in the next song. Yeah. Bad dragon. So. Bad. Next, we have the song A Strange Day. This one starts off a bit more synth heavy than the other tracks. It works well with the minimalist drums. I'm looking for another synonym for somber. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah, when you look at it under the microscope, these songs are pretty depressing. But at the same time, I feel like this album provides a nice relaxing catharsis, as I alluded to earlier. Yes, it's depressing, but depressing things can be cathartic because you can relate to them and you can get through things or just because the tone of the music is also soothing. It's funny you guys keep mentioning it being depressing music because I don't necessarily think of it as depressing music. And I think back to, I don't know where I was. I don't know what tour it was. I don't remember if I was sober or if I was hammered, which I'm generally not hammered at shows, but on a few of those tours, when I was following Porcupine Tree, there were a few nights that were, yeah, towards the end of the night, it was a little wobbly. Touch and go. Yeah. Wobbly is a great word because I was still coherent. <laughs> uh, never passed out of the show. Unlike some people we know. I wasn't implying that. <laughs> hey, I fully admit I passed out in a park next to the Opeth tour bus one yeah, night in San Francisco. I know that story. So I can fully, I'm not at all saying that. But I remember during the song Stop Swimming from Porcupine Tree, Stephen Wilson saying, this is quite a depressing song, but I find sometimes you find more beauty in depressing songs than you would in a beautiful song. Some did that effect. Yeah. I'm paraphrasing. Yes. And no, you, I, you got it. And I get a lot of that from this album. Yeah, it sounds depressing. But in my opinion, I'm not saying anything about how you guys feel about it. You, you almost choose to make it more depressing than it needs to be. Not <laughs> yeah, guys, that's saying, true. Well, listen, it's true because <laughs> it's oh, our fault. Okay, <laughs> so you read the lyrics, so you know more. This is actually one where I don't really know the lyrics to most of these songs. But lyrics are also subjective too. On yes, top of that, yeah. So, true. so, so th this is stuff that I listen to, and it just washes over me. I don't listen to the, I don't follow the lyrics on this album, and so when I say it's oppressing, I, I mean more somber. It's Oh, and I'm not saying you guys. Yeah, I think you may have taken that literally. Damn I, it, man. I'm referring <laughs> to the legions of people. Yeah. And I say this because we all grew up during the Cure's heyday. absolute explosion heyday. And a lot of kids that listened to them, that were younger than us, that were getting into them, were wearing all black, like Robert mm. Smith. They were mm. painting their faces white, like Robert Smith, teasing their hair like him, boys and girls. And I thought, I just always felt like they chose to be that morose. You know? The Edward Scissorhands look. And that miserable. Yeah, exactly. That's painted a picture. Not, and like you said earlier, this album was all the excesses of rock and all the negatives that came with it, with the issues the band was having. I think sometimes when you're younger, you don't see that or realize that. And so they take this as, well, this is what it should be. And this, I should be miserable. You can be yeah. if you want to. <laughs> I listen to death metal and I'm not going to go out and kill like 47 people with a machete. Yeah. It's dramatic, right? Like it's yeah. a, it's yeah. melodramatic almost. Yeah, it is. Exactly. And, and it people is. People can feed off of that, right? When you're a sure. teenager, you're looking for 
how to Anything. who you are and mm. how to express yourself and you latch onto something like that and you know i'm guilty of that as much as anybody else but you brought up a really good point george when you said that you feel that while the music is depressing it's cathartic yeah. to some degree and i listen to a lot of dark ambient music and people are like, oh, it's so depressing. It sounds so evil. But I get a lot of clarity listening because yeah. I can hyper-focus on a certain part of it that kind of takes me in a different place. I'm not like floating in the air and singing <laughs> kumbaya shit or anything like that. But yeah, no, well, it just Dark Ambient's super cathartic. Yeah, I get a clarity that I don't normally get listening to other music. And I could see that a little bit here if you let those kind of sorrowful depressing as we've used that word a thousand times without using another word if you let that kind of wash over you and wash off of you i think you can go to a kind of an interesting place with it without being so depressed so that's again i'm not saying anything about you guys that's how i view the music i actually found a lot to like about the music i didn't read the lyrics because quite frankly i already knew what they were going to be about (laughs) (laughs) i've read enough of of other stuff to know I want to put one other thing. I don't want to forget this since I don't have as detailed notes by song like you guys. George, you mentioned synths on this song and TR, you mentioned the lack of guitar. I actually found this album more guitar driven for them compared to their later albums that became very kind of synthy, electronic, not electronic in the sense of the jangly electronic. Yes. Thank you. The kind of synthy like belly sound that they used on a lot of their hit songs. I agree. I would like to have heard the guitar better in the mix, yes, and more up front. But I always felt it was more guitar-driven with minimal synth work on the album. They didn't rely so much on the synth at this point, like a lot of bands were going to do, coming up in a year or two from now where the synth dominated the sound and the guitars were there, but they were like, hey, you might as well just be the bass player in the band, the way they were treated. I just want to make sure I got that in real quick, because you mentioned synths on this song, A Strange Day. And I'm going to mention it on this next one, too. Before you do... One of the things that I wanted to say is, even though you mentioned the synths on this song, the thing that jumped out at me was the guitar at the end. I wish that the guitar at the end of this song went through the whole song. (laughs) That was the thing that I came away with thinking, man, he goes off at the end on the guitar. Right. And it's, man, where was this for the whole song? This, This would have really been awesome if he had just played like you know, the whole song through like this. You know, like it's that, funny. That was what was... I feel like I was thinking about you when I heard this part. <laughs> and I was like, I bet TR will like this part. Yeah, I did. <laughs> and I really felt like I wish that the whole, that had gone through the whole song. I wonder if there are any Cure fans out there, serious fans, and you actually pay attention to us and our social media sites. <laughs> I would be curious to know if there is a reason why the guitar was used not sparingly, but selectively for highlighting different parts because part of the whole punk scene prior to them was very anti-excess of the 70s. It was anti-prog and it was anti-hard rock because of all the excesses of, yes, releasing an album with four 20-minute songs or Led Zeppelin playing a 26-minute song live in concert that's only six minutes on album. So they really hyper-focused on short, quick, fast and not no guitar solos, everything was gone. So for these post-punk bands, which they are a post-punk band, that's where they started. I wonder if some of that mentality was still there, but they realized, hey, using guitar here is going to add an extra layer of texture to this song that we normally wouldn't have. Because a lot of these bands don't solo that much. There's no 
spotlight solos yeah. on guitar. Well, you know, here's the, the other so thing. it just makes me wonder, is there's still that mentality with some of these bands, like Duran Duran's another band. They had a pretty good guitar player, but he really didn't do much. Their soloing on that band was more on the bass side than it was on guitar. Yeah, Which, and the other part of this album is like most of the songs, when the lyrics are happening, the guitar is out. It's bass and drums, and the guitar is not there. Yeah. And so there's like most straight ahead rock stuff. There's a riff going on. There's a guitar riff happening. And then like somebody's singing over that riff. Maybe but, Robert's and, like and, me and he can't sing and play at the same time. Well, I don't know, <laughs> but I can tell you that in most of the cases on this, on the songs on this album, the guitar drops out when he's singing and it's all bass and drums and the bass and the drums set the riff, if you will. And then the guitar adds some, like you said, John, it's a, like a texture and they add it as they feel necessary. Uh, other than, of course, that that riff in a hundred years where, you know, that's like the riff of the song is like that guitar sound. But a lot of this, it's just it's bass and drums and the lyric. And then there might be some guitar stuff on the side. Yeah. Bass and drums with a side of guitar. <laughs> <laughs> make mine a double all right so this next song the penultimate song is called cold and i'm not sure what the synth is on the opening of the track i was thinking maybe like synth cello no he it is an actual cello it I is think. an actual cello yes wow I, and you can't get more dirgy than this <laughs> yeah it's pretty dark a violin and cello would maybe take it to the next level. Maybe so. <laughs> this song made me think of it being like a precursor to Nine Inch Nails. Like weird wow. Trent Reznor kind of stuff. And then, of course, more of the Cure's special brand of happiness, as we'll call it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and Robert Smith actually plays that cello. Did he really? I'm reading the liner notes online. Oh, wow. <laughs> that's awesome. I was like, oh, that's got to be a synth. But guess not. I, I stand corrected. He does play. He says it, they say he played keyboards here, but we all know that those are synths. Come on now. Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty cool though. Yeah. All right. So the last track of the album is the title cut pornography. And uh, this is the one song on here. I don't really care for very much. Uh, Didn't need it. Yeah. It's <laughs> just a, like a lot of sample dialogue going on for the first few minutes of the song. At least I assume it's sampled. It sounds like stuff from like movies or TV or something, but I suppose it could have been done in the studio and just made to sound that way. Then they were samples. They were samples of BBC and other shows and okay. some of it's backward tracked and whatnot. Yeah. So it's a few minutes before Robert even starts singing, but overall the song is just disjointed and it's, I tend to just turn the album off when I get to this point. <laughs> so <laughs> It's Killjoy a little bit on the album, I think. It, yeah. For someone who doesn't know them that well on a list, I'm like, okay, this is actually a pretty cool album. And then I got to that and I was like, eh. I'd rather have this. At the, I know this is a debate on the Metalheads podcast, but you want these songs at the in the middle or the end of an album. And sometimes I'd rather have it in the middle to give a break in the album to divide it. A bathroom break. Yeah. <laughs> in, this case, <laughs> in this case, I would prefer neither. <laughs> so that's just me. To me... So, yeah, I, my notes on this say trippy, dissonant, and the samples make it feel like a nightmare sequence. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, so, I mean, it's it, like it a bad acid trip. Yeah, pretty much. That's the vibe I got from this. 
Yeah, it's just really, I don't know, it's, it sounds experimental to me. Yeah. Which I find interesting that they they made this track the title track of the album, basically, and they left it for the end. And it's just, I don't know, it's surprising to me because... It's clap! I just, I don't understand. Like, this is the title track of your album. And it's the most kind of weird song on the album and that's saying a lot because <laughs> these other songs are pretty weird too well, maybe but it was it's, meant to represent the period what they were going through yeah it's well, probably possible. yeah they were it was very difficult i think based on some of the things i read about it and yeah. and i think one of the members left the band at this after this and yeah it's just it's an odd song and it's a long song as yeah. I recall. Six and a half minutes, yeah. Yeah, one of the longer songs on the album, and it just, I don't know, it, it's just creepy and weird and just strange, and it doesn't really resolve. Yeah, um, there's no which, payoff. You, know, you want an album to, yeah, exactly, you want an album to resolve a little, and, and this doesn't really do it, but... Maybe it's supposed to leave you uncomfortable yeah, when you're done. That's Yeah, that's what it did. And it's, the, yeah, mission accomplished. All right, so in summary for me, I think the album... It works as good background music, but it also works under scrutiny and provides a thoughtful, introspective listen for those who choose to dig into it. I don't know any other album quite like this one, and it captivates me every time I listen to it. I used to play a, a game on PlayStation called No Man's Sky, if you've ever heard of it, I don't know. And I would always play this while I was playing that game because it's a it's like a space exploration game and you spend a lot of time flying around and walking around on planets looking for things. And this was just like the best soundtrack to play that game. And so I would just listen to this album on repeat while playing this game. And so that's yeah. my take. Yeah. I would say for me, this is my first real full album. Listen for a cure album and definitely dark, definitely bleak, definitely twisted. The vocals like I have a problem with Robert Smith's vocals. I have to say, because they're not really, they're not really, he's not really singing. It's to me. And I know this is going to probably offend a lot of cure fans. And I, but this is, this podcast is about us giving our unvarnished opinions about the music we're listening to. And for me, like, it sounds like he's whining yeah, all the time. <laughs> and it's all like a lament. Everything is a lament. And so anyway, and I tried to, one of the things that I tried to identify about this was like, okay, he's not really a singer, right? Like he's so a vocalist. Me, he's not singing. He's more of a vocalist. So I'm like, okay, maybe I have a problem with just like vocalists. And then I thought about David Lee Roth <laughs> and I thought he's not a singer. He's a vocalist, but I love him. <laughs> and and I, so he's more it's perky. Not, that's true. And it's a whole different kind of vocal delivery, which may be part of the reason. But I, so I was just trying to identify, okay, what is it about like the vocals that, that I don't care for? And I, I just, I'm not sure I can identify it exactly, but it just, I think the fact that he does sound like he's whining and it does sound like a lament on everything that he's doing that, that I'm, that I just, I guess it just doesn't appeal to me. I hate to say it, like, I'm just not a big fan, but, like, I did, I really appreciate 
that I got to listen to this and experience this album because again, it's not something I probably would have done if I had not been part of this podcast. So I really appreciate the expansion of my knowledge of bands that I have never listened to. So for me, this was on the last episode. One of the things that I did was I wanted to talk about the things that I like about these albums. And so I want to tell you the things that I do like about this album. And one of them is that to me, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts on this album. Taken individually, the different elements of this album are not really that impressive. But when it all comes together, it delivers a lot more than what you would think on paper. It just, it it gives you, it, it sets a mood, it's impressionistic, and and the lyrics fit the song, but it's not really clear what they really mean. So <laughs> those it's up are the to the that, listener to decide what they mean. Exactly. You can interpret it the way you wish. And that's cool because it gives you a little bit of flexibility in terms of how you interpret this album. But overall, I prefer uh, to beat people over the head with my lyrics. <laughs> I pretty much that those are the things that I like about this album. So I am also not a Cure fan, but. I would listen to other Cure albums if they were like this one because there's nothing that stands out in terms of radio play. And the reason I keep bringing that up is because of when this came out. It came out in the 80s. And in the 80s, especially the early, the start of the decade to the middle of the 80s, radio was still king before MTV took over. So if this wasn't on FM radio that I was listening to, which at that time would have been, KRQR, KSFX, KML, KSJO, Verdano, San Jose, or KOME. Hey, don't touch that dial. It's got KOME. Come on it. I'm not kidding. That was the actual ad <laughs> radio bumper for it. 98.5 in San Jose, California. If it wasn't any one of those hard rock stations, I would have never listened to this. But going back and listening to it now, I would listen to more stuff like this because I'm not hearing Boys Don't Cry or Love Song or Friday I'm in love because that's all I heard from these guys 24 seven, whenever I heard anything yeah. and it soured my view on this band. I dig the kind of darker, I wouldn't say it's ethereal. It's kind of skirting towards that a little bit, but somber, I think is a great way to describe it. Maybe the production is not the best in the world, which I'm a little surprised <laughs> for them. I didn't think know? it was that but bad, it, but it's not bad. I think that it's more the mix and not the production. I uh, think sometimes. Yeah. We get that confused, including myself. And we meaning just music fans in general. I dig the kind of goth. It's not gothic. It's more goth. There is somewhat of a difference because gothic seems to fall more on the metal side. And I know that sounds silly to people, but this is what we do. We keep subgenreizing everything. I do dig some of the post-punky vibes, but they're very minimal in the sound. And it is. it does have a cold wave feel to it. Whereas the later stuff gets a little more not happy, but the lyric or the music rhythms get a little more upbeat. Yeah. No, I actually dig this album a little bit. Like, Tara, I don't know how much I would reach for it, but however, if we were hanging out, drinking a beverage or two, and this was on, <laughs> it wouldn't. I would be into it. It wouldn't bother yeah. me. So nice. And I would seek out more if I had more time to listen to music like this, but I have zero time to listen to music <laughs> because my cue is just bursting at the seams right now of stuff I have to listen to. Why not, ever do you mean that? 
I've got about 87 reasons why that is. If I, if I showed you, if I just showed you the recent vinyl I just gotten and I had no idea they were all coming in the same week. Jen's looking at me like, really? And I'm like, I didn't plan this. <laughs> I'm so far behind. Anyway, I don't want to belabor this anymore. I think it's a good choice and it's a good choice to do this early on because it is different, but it is worthy of a lesson without yeah. question. Excellent. Glad to hear that. Yeah. Yeah, thanks, George. It fared better with you guys than I thought it might. So I appreciate uh, I appreciate the open mind. I think probably, I don't know if this is accurate or not. We'll find out as we, we do the podcast. I probably am a lot more sympathetic to some of these bands maybe than TR might be, but we haven't really talked about that. So I don't know yet. Sympathetic so we'll, jerk. Not at all. <laughs> I mean, there's some of these bands I did not like at all yeah. back then that I'm a really big fan of now. I like a lot, actually. Yeah. So. And that's what I'm also looking forward to that. I have to say that I was pretty closed-minded at the time, and I think I blocked out a lot of stuff that probably I jumped the gun on some of that stuff. And I'm slightly regretful about that, but I see this as an opportunity to, to give those bands a chance and to listen to some stuff that I never really got into, but might have some merit in terms of musicality or whatever it might be. I'm sure that there will be things that I will discover that maybe I might've been a little hasty on some of this stuff. I'm sure we all will. Yeah. At least I know I will. Oh, you will. Now we will move on to the second album of the evening, which shall be introduced by TR. Yes. George, you said that this podcast would also include things that were rock adjacent. Yes. And so for my first selection, I chose Donald Fagan's album, The Nightfly, released in October of 1982. And this was his first solo album. And it came a couple of years after Steely Dan had broken up and Donald Fagan, as you know, was one half of Steely Dan with Walter Becker and the band had broken up or he had split from Walter Becker and decided to do a solo album. However, he employed Gary Katz to produce the album who had produced all the Steely Dan albums up to that point. And he also used many of the same session musicians that he had used on the Steely Dan albums to include musicians like Jeff Beccaro on drums and Larry Carlton on the guitar. This album was a, an album that was autobiographical for Donald Fagan. The, the whole album gives basically is a look back at his youth. And so there are a lot of songs on this album that kind of look back at the late fifties, early sixties and that time frame. And they, and it, the songs on this album really paint a picture from that time. And it's optimistic. It's there are a lot of things about that time frame that he captures very well on this album throughout the album. And so the album, and just to back up, he, he, so Fagan was 34 years old at the time of this release. Looking back, he, he, when he, he was born in 48, so he's looking back at the time when he was between the ages of 10 and, and probably 15 and growing up in New Jersey and listening to the radio at night 
and the impressions that he was getting. And the, and this is a, uh, for those of you that have listened to Steely Dan or maybe even uh, Donald Fagan's solo albums, you'll discover that there's a very heavy jazz influence on the music. And so when he was growing up, that was something that he really got uh, attracted to. And so he was listening to jazz at that early age and listening to late night DJs and all of that kind of permeates this album. And though he, in the album itself, it says the songs on this album represent certain fantasies that might have been entertained by a young man growing up in the remote suburbs of a northeastern city during the late 50s and early 60s, i.e. one of my general height, weight and build. <laughs> so while he's while it's basically saying, yes, this is an autobiographical thing, it's also fantasies of a person from that period of that age. And so the album kicks off with IGY, International Geophysical Year, which in 1958 was a, a collaborative effort with scientists across the world where they were working together on a lot of physical science activities. And so it was a very collaborative effort. And the song itself is really, while that collaborative effort and in the International Geophysical Year was something that took place in 1958, this song is really more about what was going on at that period and the optimism and the new, the like the future that was here, right? Like the whole kind of Jetsons concept of, hey, we're going to have all this cool stuff in the future, and the part that I really appreciate about this song is the fact that he wrote this in 1982 about a song, like about a time in 1958, looking forward to 19, the 1970s, where the future was going to be amazing. And he knows how it really turned out, but yet he's able to capture that optimism and the uh, that feeling of hey the everything is at our fingertips and we're going to have we're going to have like all this technology it's going to make things easy for us things are going to be great in the future it's going to be beautiful it's going to be amazing and we're going to have all this uh, the ability to go from new york to paris in 90 minutes and all these kind of cool things and and he knows how it really turned out, right? Like he knows in 1982, yeah, we still couldn't do all that. But yet he's able to write it from the perspective of somebody in 1958 thinking about how cool is this? We're, we are really going to, this is going to be amazing. When we get to 1976, it's going to be incredible. And this is one of the more popular songs on the album, I think. And I really like this song. And I think it sets the tone of the album. It's very optimistic and it's very upbeat. And when you think about going from the cure to this, I think it's funny, but, but <laughs> I, don't think, I don't think it could get too like, it couldn't be more polar opposite, but right. um, <laughs> uh, do you guys have any comments on the first song or the album overall? Up until this point in my life, I never intentionally listened to music like this, <laughs> but I'm going to do my best to be fair in retrospect. Technically, there is no single element of this album that should be offensive to me. It will ebb and flow as we go. While listening That's, to this... That is so diplomatic that it's true. <laughs> I'm just going to slap you in the face like, and, yeah, and then dust you off much, and yeah, fix like, you up. Uh, this, nothing here should be offensive to me. 
And then the unspoken but is. (laughs) (laughs) No, there's good and there's bad. Ultimately, I was okay with this. But while listening to the first song, I said, I think perhaps this music sounds dated to me, which a lot, most music sounds dated to whatever period it came from. And I was like, if I had heard this when it was first released, I might have understood that and been like, it's 1982. Yay, this is cool. I get this. And I might feel nostalgic for it now. It's, and I relate that to hearing a new thrash band that comes out in 2023 sounding like an 80s thrash band. And it sounds dated. And it doesn't appeal to me because I know that came out now. But even if there was occasionally I'll come across an 80s thrash, early proto thrash album that I hadn't heard that I probably would have loved in 1982. But I hear it now and I'm just like, meh, because it's like I've moved on from that sound. And I feel if I had listened to this in 1982 or shortly thereafter, I would probably feel better about it. Or more attached to it. More attached to it. Yeah. As it is, I hear these songs and I'm thinking the love boat or. You got to remember too. One of the things about this album is he's drawing from influences of music from the fifties and early sixties. So yes, it's going to sound dated because he's drawing from his influences and that early period of time So while he's playing synthesizers and while you're hearing modern sounds, the what he's drawing from and the types of music that he's drawing from is from that period. Yeah, but this has a much more. Actually, I would have thought that if I didn't know better, I would have said this was a 70s album, at least late 70s Mm -hmm. album, because Mm -hmm. it's a little more funky. Got a little more bass. I like jazz music. Just give me straight up jazz music like Miles Davis or something. I'm absolutely chill with that. And I think I talk about this a little more later, so I'll leave that alone. But as for this first song, I thought it was catchy, had a nice beat to it, got my head bobbing. So I was was like, all right, let's see what you got. So I actually do like some Steely Dan, especially their first album, Can't Buy a Thrill. It's probably my favorite. It's got... They're more popular songs or more famous songs, but I actually like Dirty Work is my favorite song by them. So I, I do like some of his more, the slower stuff that he's written. So I kind of went into this knowing I was going to get some of that, but not maybe not that sound. So this first song, I'm not as big on as you guys. It's okay, but there's a problem I have with the chorus, unfortunately, because to me, this has. Even though he's all the things you've mentioned here are the influences of the fifties, maybe early sixties, and he's writing it in the eighties. And George, you mentioning he sounds dated. I hear something that I can't get out of my head, and I'm going to be hated by every Steely Dan and every Fagan fan in the world. I'll still love you, but, but when I hear that <laughs> chorus and I hear those backup singers, I'm thinking one name only. And that's Michael McDonald. (laughs) And I cannot get it out of my head on this particular song because the whole song sounds like Donald Fagan. And then the chorus comes in and it's like, to me, it sounds like a departure and that's fine. I don't have a problem with that. You can't do the same thing over every single album or the same thing you were doing in your first band, your main band. But I couldn't get that style of chorus writing out of my head. And so 
they dragged the song down a little bit. The song's fine. I don't have a problem with the song, but when I got to the chorus, just like, uh, they're going to hate me or TR is going to hate me for this. No, dude, <laughs> it's know? fine. And, but it's so, funny, like you mentioned Michael McDonald, because actually, now that you say that, like I can totally picture him singing that part. And and I never thought about that until now. So it's interesting because obviously he, he was in Steely Dan, sang songs with them. And so, yeah, makes, I could makes definitely me wonder hear that. Yeah, it's like, a slight hmm. influence a little bit. I don't know if Donald yeah. Fagan would ever admit that. I don't know how what their relationship is with those guys now, but it just has a little bit of that feel. Interesting. Um, Michael McDonald was in Steely Dan. Oh yeah. Oh, that's Song another thing. reason I don't like that band. <laughs> Come on. Barb's a huge Michael McDonald fan, but so, I'm like, so not. is, so is Jen, whether you like Michael McDonald or not. And I, there's a lot that I don't like because <laughs> I do like the Doobie brothers. Here's no doubt that he is a prolific writer and mm-hmm. he knows how to write a catchy song yeah. for a lot of different genres of music. No yeah. So he no, can't. He just can't. No, I agree I'm with you, John. It's true. And if I hear Yo Yo Ma one more time, I'm gonna I'm gonna just <laughs> kill myself. If anyone knows what I'm referring to, there. I know so who Yo Yo Ma is. Forty year old virgin. Does anyone not remember that scene? <laughs> Crickets. Oh man. Oh my God! Really? You guys don't know that? I haven't seen that movie oh, in twenty years. Yeah, where he's just oh. like, if I if I got to hear this one more time, I'm gonna kill myself. I'm gonna kill myself. Yeah, remember that was that like he, the video that they had on the TVs that were playing in the place every where he was single working. day. And yeah. at some point, he's drunk and his butt comes out. Come on, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's <a> classic. <laughs> anyway, all, all right. right. So the next song is Greenflower Street, a funky tune, and again, Larry Carlton's guitar playing throughout this album is outstanding. The so Larry tasteful. Carlton. Yes. I did not and, know that. Yeah. And I'll tell you all the tasteful guitar music. Rick Derringer plays on this too. Really? Yeah. Oh, the album's loaded with music. There's no Hoochie yeah. on this. Yeah. It's a little bit. Maybe but, behind um, the scenes. But yeah. So anyway, cool tune, kind of jazzy, funky, almost also bluesy. Cause it's like you, you say a, a lyric, you repeat the lyric. So Yeah. I don't have a whole lot of comments about this. I like this song as well, but I like all the songs on this album. This one is the one song on the album that did remind me of Steely Dan more. And maybe it's just mm-hmm. because of some of the playing on it, former Steely Dan musicians. Mm-hmm. It just reminded me a little more of that song structure. The song's fine. I didn't have a problem with this one at all. So I don't really have a problem with any of the songs on the album, to be honest with you. So. Yeah, I, I have a problem with this one. <laughs> just kidding. But I would say that this is probably my least favorite on the album. Okay. It's all okay. It's tolerable. It's like, yeah, I get it. And yeah, I'll get to that later. But this one, as you mentioned, starts off a bit more funky. Mm-hmm. And funk is one of the things that I've never really been able to get into. Funk just doesn't okay. do anything for me. This song makes me think I need a pimp suit and some platform shoes. <laughs> The 70s called. Wait, I got to do it right. Uh, the 70s called. It wants its funk back. <laughs> but I was still bobbing my head. Okay. Well, that's fair. The next song is Ruby Baby. And the funny thing about this song is it's actually a, a Lieber and Stoller song. So this is a cover. And I didn't know this was a cover until I actually heard the original song on the radio one time. And I thought, 
wait a minute, <laughs> I know this song, and this is not what I was thinking this song was. And uh, so this was originally written and released by, Lieber and Stoller wrote it, it was released by the Drifters in the late 50s, hmm. and then Dion put it out in early 60s. So obviously, again, keeping with the theme of the late 50s, early 60s, he did his own kind of remake of this song with a lot of jazzy, super jazzy vocals on this, which I, I really, I love the vocals throughout this album The like the jazzy harm harmonies and the, just the, the dense harmony vocals with the jazzy dissonance that takes place where it just, I don't know. I, I really like that sound. This album sounded just more sophisticated than the things I was listening to at the time. And so I felt, Ooh, this is, this is different. And this is something I should aspire to somehow. <laughs> just, I agree with the, the, like, sorry. I agree with the sophisticated. Yeah. That's for sure. Yeah. So for this song, I'm glad you told me that I did not realize this was a cover because my one note about this song and I tend to have this knack. I don't know why, because I have people tell me all the time I didn't hear that. I'm not saying I'm, I hear music better than anybody. I just hear different things. And the intro, which is that drum, bass, piano bit at the very mm -hmm. beginning, it's really funny what I thought of. It made me think of Rosanna by Toto a little bit. Just that little bit of <laughs> like 10 seconds at the beginning. And it's funny that it's a cover because that would be is that Toto mimicking some of the early stuff from before? <laughs> is it it's so a, Jeff Percaro? Of course, the whole plays Percaro drums on this. Band. He was he founded yeah. Toto. So. Yeah, him and his brothers. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. And I'm a huge, not so much solo work, but I like all Steve Lithaker's work with Derek Sherinian. It just reminded me of that, and I dug that about the song. I was like, wow, it's they're not doing it all. It just it certain notes and certain playing sometimes just conjures up different things that you hear. Mm -hmm. I thought that was a neat little thing that I picked up on that obviously is not what he was doing. I get that. No, um, but that's interesting because I didn't think of that. Yeah. Or and it doesn't sound, that didn't exactly. occur to me. It yeah, no, but, but like now that, that you feel. mentioned that, it's oh yeah. So apparently Michael McDonald and Toto wrote this <laughs> album. <laughs> yeah, they should have been involved more. <laughs> Yeah. So then the next, uh, uh, that, that, did, that, did that, you have that, any comments? I okay. I've got all comments right. for everything. Then, all right. So I like this one better than the last one. It's less funky. Okay. I thought the piano was really cool. Mm. I liked the it'll, the middle instrumental part. I thought that was mm. cool. And I definitely prefer this bluesy jazzy sound to the funk. Definitely. Yeah. So, yeah. That's it. Cool. Okay. Good. All right. So the next song is Maxine. And this is a young man's, again, another fantasy about a high school love and his vision of where it's going to go. But you get the impression the kind of the end of each of the lyrics is try to hang on, Maxine. So it basically gives you the impression like she's pulling away or maybe she's thinking like, okay, this might be over or we're, I'm out of here and... But yet he's got all these romantic visions of what it's going to be like with, you know, together and what they're going to do in the future. And so this this one of the things that I found interesting about this album, being a fan of Steely Dan and thinking about the kind of the music they wrote, it was rarely 
romantic. There's not a lot of romantic music in Steely Dan, but Donald Fagan comes up with some of the songs on this album that are semi-romantic. And this song, I think, is romantic, even though ultimately it's not clear that, that Maxine has the same interest. He's got like some... I think very romantic views of where they're going to go and what they're going to do together. And, and he's just begging her to try to hang on. So I like this song a lot. I like this, the saxophone in this song. And um, I, I don't know. It's one of my favorites on the album, probably not my favorite, but one of my favorites on this album. I agree with that. I think this is my favorite song on the album. And I just got to say, I feel like this song was used as the inspiration for Faith No More's Edge of the World. It's yeah. like total piano jazz lounge music. <laughs> Other than the fact that the Faith No More version is way sketchier. But it's the same kind of like, <laughs> I mean, this piano vibe in the middle of the night. How you doing, baby? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't honestly remember much about this song. <laughs> and that's not, it just, it didn't, for me, it didn't stand out as much. And it might have something to do with the songs that followed. And maybe I gravitated a certain way. And, I got um, your back, TR. Not knocking at all. I don't, there's nothing about it that I dislike. I just, yeah. it didn't stand out to me as much. So. Sure. No, that's okay. The next song is called New Frontier. And this is one of my favorites on the album as well. It's another late fifties, early sixties piece, because basically he's talking about having a party in a fallout shelter. And which if you think about the late fifties, early sixties, I'm sure like, and, and you're young, right? Like the specter of nuclear war is as an adult, it would probably be pretty frightening. But as a teenager, it's like, hey, this is a cool place to have a party and we're going to have all this beer in here and we're going to have music in here and it's going to be cool. So the, the perspective of of that he's putting onto this song, I think is pretty funny. And the fact that this is the only song I think I've ever heard that uses the word wingding in it, I think is pretty cool. But yeah, so the whole thing is about, hey, we're going to have this party in 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 my dad's fallout shelter and there's this pretty girl there and i'm interested in her and she likes brubeck and this is really cool and yeah we're this is i'm having a good time and so i think it's funny that again the optimism and the looking at it through the lens of a teenager in that time takes precedence over all the horrible things that were going on at that time in terms of nuclear war, the brinksmanship that was taking place and all the stuff that was going on in Cuba and just everything that was happening then. And he turns it into, Hey, we're going to have a party in this fallout shelter and surviving on the new frontier. Like when we emerge from this fallout shelter with our beer and our music, that's what we're going to be prepared for the future somehow. And so I like the message because I think it's funny and it's just a cool tune. I feel like I wish I had heard all of your descriptions of these things before I'd listened to the album. I think it would have had an <laughs> impact on the way I, you know, took it in. So hmm. when I listened to this one at the beginning, it gives me this like Billy Joel, my life vibe on the, it's like, dun, 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 dun. Do you hear that? Do you know what I'm talking about? Now that you mention it, I suppose maybe, but gosh. It's adjacent. 
Yeah. Maybe it was the tone of the piano. I don't know, but it just, it sounded like that. And it reminded me of, and I had to, I actually was like derailed for a while because I had to go and figure out what (laughs) Billy Joel song that was. It only took about 10 minutes, but so I, I thought that was cool. Billy Joel leaves the building when he starts singing, however. Completely different. Not that that's not a detraction or anything. It just went a different way. And I wanted to mention that it was at this point in the album that I realized that the guitar solos on this album are really cool because the one mm-hmm. on this song was really cool. And I was like, you know, I do like the little like guitar embellishments that like float up to the top every now and again. And uh, so that is something that I like about this album. So I actually did know this song. I just didn't know the title, but I have heard this song a gazillion times without even realizing it. And this is by far, it's not even close, my favorite song on the album. And for it's for a number of reasons. TR, you brought up the whole idea of the nuclear age. Yes, this is like the soundtrack to the atomic age. I picture the families all getting together for dinner and enjoying themselves and dry and driving around in their atomic age world of new technology. But still, the old world is still there a little bit. The clothes are slightly changing. Everyone's smiling. But on the other side of the video, we're in Nevada and we're doing another test site and we're blowing up another nuclear bomb. Mm-hmm. Are there ships gathering in the ocean off the coast of a country? It's so bizarre how this song, to, for me, represents the soundtrack to the atomic age and i absolutely love this song but there's another reason why i love this song and this is for all the wrong reasons (laughs) but at this time in the 80s we did not necessarily have cable in college like all kids do probably today we had regular stations and at a certain point the regular station stopped programming it was all infomercials and I just remember the infomercial for Amber Vision sunglasses <laughs> and the song they used during the Amber Vision sunglasses reminds me of this song. And I've, <laughs> and it has haunted me since the eighties, this sound. And there's a certain kind of, and it's, this song is a little, it's while it's poppy, it's jazzy. There's a little bit of fusion in this song too. Mm-hmm. Uh, slightly and he was never a big fusion guy but there were times yeah. in steely dance crew they got it they had a little fusion going on oh, they yeah. jammed a little bit and this is all that wrapped up into one neat package and this amber vision sunglasses theme song and i found the video <laughs> on youtube i played it like a hundred times since i found it not i found it before this we started reviewing this album it just there's something about it that conjured up like man i remember those days in college when or in high school when Everyone's asleep and I'm still up because I can't sleep because I'm just filled with all kinds of crazy energy. And it's like two in the morning and it's just before the American flag comes up and the national anthem and the static. And there's these, all these infomercials. And so when I heard this song, I was like the sunglasses and I do know this song. <laughs> and it made me happy to hear that because I actually do like this song. I think it's a well-written song. I think to me, this is the song that stands out for me. I know IGY stands out for most people who like Fagan. This is the one on the album that stands out for me. Yeah. And you like those sunglasses. That's because they're going to protect my eyes from UV rays. Okay. All right. The next song is The Nightfly, which is the title track from the album. And this song, he's basically taking the persona of a nighttime DJ playing jazz getting weird calls from wackos in the middle of the night about people in the trees. And he's also relaying 
a lost love and a time in his life when he had love, but it's gone. And so he wishes he had a heart like ice. There's this cool jazzy dude that's out there for the night shift and he's playing this music and he's thinking about this lost love. And anyway, I, I liked the vibe of this song. I always felt it was like really cool. And again, here's Fagan kind of processing those late night listens to DJs when he was a young man or yeah, pretty much a boy listening to the radio and just glomming on to these guys that were, that were essentially heroes to him. And he really gets that across in this song because it's basically like, yeah, this guy's, this guy's cool. This is, this guy's awesome. Right. <laughs> so I really like this tune. And again, I like all the songs on this album, I got to say, but this, I can see why he would call this album the night fly, because I think this of all the songs on this album, I think this gets across the, what was most important to him at that age. And if you look at the album cover on the back side of the album, it's basically late, a late evening picture of a suburban house where the upstairs bedroom window has a light in it. And theoretically he's sitting there in his room with the light on listening to this late night jazz radio guy. And so it's not surprising. And of course the cover of the album has Fagan himself in the role of this night fly character transmitting his jazz radio show at, 409 in the morning so yeah so that that gives you the vibe of what the album's about i thought it was pretty cool too it's i thought it was a nice follow-up to new frontier i don't have much more to add to it other than i liked it yeah i thought it was all right i liked the whole dj thing about it i was like that's pretty cool yeah and it kind of ties in like you said the the sleeve or the cover to the album he's at the smokes it's obvious it's late night because the clock's off there on the left side of the image. And it's cool. That kind of ties in with the song and with the kind of underlying of the album itself and the stories on the album. So the next song is called the goodbye look. I think that's a cool song title. It is. And it's interesting to me. So in this song, it's some sort of Island that he's on and there's again you're talking about the late 50s early 60s so you can picture in your mind what's going on it sounds like there's some sort of espionage or i don't know some sort of situation where there are kingpins and people that rule the island and they're looking out for him and he's in trouble and he's got to get out of there and i've always felt like there was a casablanca feel to this song. I never saw the movie Casablanca, but I know it's an Island. There's like people that are out to get the main character and that's what's going on here. The funny thing is, is I always had a feeling like in my mind, when I listen to this song, I've always had a black and white Casablanca image in my mind, but yet all the lyrical information in this song talks about women all in white, the sun in the islands, 
and just basically like a bright island kind of situation. But in my mind, when I listen to this and when I, I think about it, 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 I feel like a kind of a Casablanca kind of a feel. But yeah, I like this song. I like the kind of the sound that, that um, you know, there's a, like a marimba type of sound to this album, like a kind of a, in a, like a bossa nova style beat, which I kind of liked. And again, that's drawing from the songs from that period of time when island music was big and there were marimbas and there were xylophones and all these kinds of types of tones in music. And he's drawing on that in this song. I thought the, uh, the keyboard intro was cool or whatever it was that was playing. <clears throat> I liked this song. And I don't know if that's because I was starting to get used to this style of music or whether it was just Stockholm syndrome setting in. I'm not quite sure, but either way, I thought it was all right. I may have had the reverse of that. I didn't dislike this. I was just starting to not lose my interest, but feeling like I had heard this already on the album. And you mentioned Bossa Nova. And for me, there's only one Bossa Nova baby and that's Elvis. As we got to those last two songs in the album, I didn't, I don't have much to say, unfortunately, because I wasn't checking out on the album, but I wasn't picking up anything that was standing out for me anymore. Maybe because the previous two songs are the ones that I liked the most on the album. That might be it. And not being a super fan, not knowing this, that it may have detracted a little bit or distracted me, actually, I should say a little mm. bit less than. Yeah. yeah. And I can understand that. This album, and you guys know, in terms of this podcast, when we bring albums to the table, I think a lot of times these are going to be albums that are that we've adopted from an maybe not an early age, but we've adopted and it's been something that's been close to us for many years. And as such, there's a very close connection personally to the albums that we bring to the table. And I think that one of the things that I believe that we all experience is there are certain albums that we especially at a young age or in our teenage years, we get, we listen to and we get attached to and we absorb so completely that it's easy to lose objectivity. And so for me, this album, it's hard to be objective about this album because of that. It, it was an album that I really got attached to early on. And so as such, all these songs are very familiar to me. I've listened to this album many times. I love it. And so you start to lose the idea of the objectivity where if you were to listen to it for the first time, like you guys, it's certainly you, George, hearing it for the first time, I don't know what my reaction would be if I had never heard this, listened to it for the first time. I probably would think, yeah, this kind of sounds like Steely Dan. It's not Steely Dan because I think it's definitely more upbeat than Steely Dan is. It definitely draws from the tones and the songs from that late 50s, early 60s because of the theme of the album. So in a lot of ways, I think it's different than Steely Dan, but there's a, there's plenty here that sounds like Steely Dan for sure. Obviously, all the musicians were pretty much the same. Donald Fagan was writing the lyrics and a lot of the music. So it's not a surprise, but it definitely has its own space. And I don't think it's, it's clear that this was different from Steely Dan because first of all, the album as a whole, I think thematically 
holds together a lot better than most Steely Dan albums because the Steely Dan albums, they weren't really necessarily thematic. This was an autobiographical account for him. And I think it holds together pretty well because of the, because of that fact, each of the songs draw upon something from that period. The last song is called walk between raindrops. And to me, this kind of has a big band sound. And again, it's to me, it's, it's, it's semi romantic. I like the song. I think it's a good way to end the album. It's a quick song. I think it's only two and a half minutes and it's an enjoyable track. The, the drums and the bass were the guys from the, from David Letterman's band, the most dangerous band Uh on to television or whatever they they were called, but it, Will Lee it, plays bass and Steve Jordan is on drums for this track. Oh, I thought it was when you said you said Paul Shaver's band, right? Yeah. Oh, I thought you were going to say Anton Fig. That was his drummer, also. Oh, Steve Jordan and Will Lee were the were noted as. The oh no! I just thought you when you said because that's who I always remember from the band on Letterman. Oh, so okay. I'm not saying he's not. I just that's I thought you were saying Anton Fig. I was like, wow. So. At least I thought it was Anton Fig. Oh, somebody can correct me if I'm wrong. I don't care. I'll correct you if you're wrong, but I don't know. <laughs> yeah, now I got to look. So go on without me. I'll yeah. be right here. <laughs> I liked the bass line. I thought it was cool. It was a very simple, like, kind of doom, 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 you know, but it just stuck out to me. And I was like, yeah, groovy. Cool. Yeah, Anton Fig was a drummer. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> I, like I said to you guys, it's not that I didn't like these songs at the end. I think I was just a little drawn back to the other two songs prior to these two. Just in closing for me on this, I think initially for me, this was more accessible than Steely Dan was at the time and actually served to get me into Steely Dan. So Mm -hmm. this was my Steely Dan gateway drug maybe. (laughs) And then just recounting some live kind of situations. Donald Fagan, after he wrote this album, did not tour on it. He actually became a recluse in the rest of the 80s. And it wasn't until the mid-90s when he got back with Walter Becker and and Steely Dan revived and they wrote an album. They went on tour. And so in the mid to late 90s, they got back together. And and um, but But no time during that period did he ever play any of these songs live. And in fact, like I said, he became very reclusive after this song or this album was written. And so he didn't play any of this stuff live until the mid 2000s when he actually went on a solo tour back in 2006. And I saw that tour and he played what five of the eight songs on this album at that time, which was awesome for me as a longtime fan of this album to hear those songs live, which had really essentially never been done. And then in later years with Steely Dan, they played New Frontier. Some of the Steely Dan tours in 2017 and 18, they would play solo songs from each of the guys. Walter Becker would have a song and Donald Fagan would have one of his songs from the solo albums. And uh, New Frontier was one of those tracks. So I've been fortunate enough to hear some of these songs live. And of course, they always do an amazing job. If you like Steely Dan, seeing them live is tremendous of course walter becker's gone now but the band that they the live band has been together for many years and outstanding musicians super tight and a really great sound 
I feel like I took some baby steps towards accepting this kind of music. (laughs) (laughs) I'm proud of you, George. Maybe eventually I'll be ready for Steely Dan. Yeah, we'll get you there. Yeah, we'll get there. Yeah, I already... Um, I like I really like some Steely Dan. So this was still a new listen for me because the only Donald Fagan I knew, minus New Frontier, which I didn't know the title, but I knew the song, was the song True Champion off of the heavy metal soundtrack. Uh, he's <laughs> oh, yes. uh, uh, yeah. Actually uh, True Companion. Or yes. True Companion, I'm sorry. And so that's the only one I remember or knew. So when I listened to the album, I was pleasantly surprised and happy that I knew New Frontier. Yeah. I don't know how much if I go back to it. I don't reach for even my Steely Dan stuff that I have, but doesn't mean I wouldn't listen to it. It was on. So cool. Yeah. I might not run away if I heard it again. Might actually listen. We'll see. That's progress. Yep. We're in a new frontier with George. Indeed. <laughs> All right, so I guess I'm last here for this one. So when we were deciding on what albums we were going to go with next, I broached the question, when did we want to decide on the next album, and how did we want to pick? And we didn't really have a way of doing it. And the door was opened for me to pick first. And so I figured the door is open. I'm going to drive my truck right through it because (laughs) they gave me the option. And the band I chose is going to be a band that probably comes up more than once but if i'm going to be given the option to go with them first i'm going to select them and the band is rush however before i get to the title of the album you might think oh if you're going to talk about rush he's probably going to talk about moving pictures or he's going to talk about 2112 or it's john so he'll probably talk about a farewell the kings that's his favorite rush album no and no it's not the album i went with i chose to go with the 1980 album permanent waves because i feel like this album while it's a very popular album amongst rush fans it's a somewhat underrated album even though it's rated fairly high in their catalog i think it's rated high because of two songs and there's more to this album those two songs and if you're a hardcore rush fan your two songs that you probably mentioned first are not the two songs Mm -hmm. that a lot of other people would mention first (laughs) And I feel very confident in saying that, being a hardcore fan. And before I continue, I'm a hardcore fan. So I'm going to give a shout out to an old, an old friend of mine, Jim Rossi, who got me into Rush, despite my reservations of fighting him because I wanted him to like ACDC more than Rush. (laughs) And he planted that, that seed, that bug in me that I eventually came to. And they're now one of my probably three favorite bands of all time. So I chose Permanent Waves because of some of these feelings. I wanted this to be the first album because I think this is the perfect gateway album into Rush if you've never listened to them before for a number of reasons. And I'll get into those. If you're not familiar, this is their seventh album. It was released in January of 1980. However, everything was written and recorded in 1979. And probably they had some stuff that they were writing at 78. So this is actually not an 80s album. It's actually from the 70s. Just barely Uh, squeaked into the 80s. And that's all strictly release date, meaning we can release it on this day. But they were done with the album in the Mm -hmm. 70s. And I actually think they were playing a song or two from the album on those early kind of pre-Permanent Wave tours. 
If you know anything about Rush, it was produced by them at Terry Brown, who is famous for being with them for, I think, every album from Fly By Night to Signals, if I'm not mistaken. So he's a permanent fixture in that band. They even name a song after him, although it's called, his nickname is Brune, and the song's called Brune's Bane, which I think is funny. It's a short album that consists of only six songs, and it's under 36 minutes. It's probably their, I think it's their shortest album up to this point in their career. It definitely leaves you wanting more. But in the end, I think it serves the purpose of not being excessive. It's a transitional album for them because they're moving from their, at the time they were not prog rock. They're now considered a prog rock band, a heavy prog rock band. They're proto prog metal. They really are. But at that time they weren't considered that, but it was a transitional album. As a matter of fact, I think it's their third most important album in their whole career. 2112 being their probably their most important because that was their make or break album. If they didn't make it on an album, they were done. And they obviously knocked out of the park. The second would be moving pictures because that solidified them as one of the great bands of all time. Even if that was the last album they had ever done, they would still go down as, as popular as they are now. Maybe wouldn't have gathered as many fans later on when they kept touring in their later years, but that album would still be considered one of the great albums of the eighties, if not all rock. Permanent Waves to me is the third most important because they are transitioning. They're adding FM radio for songs. You're hearing Rush on the radio, not closer to the heart. You're hearing Spirit of Radio, Free Will, on rotation constantly. And it hasn't stopped for 40 plus years. So I, I think that kind of sets this album apart at this point in their careers. We're also seeing new influences of other genres. There's a little bit of new wave sprinkling in, just a tiny bit, not the new wave that we see coming with signals, but it's just some different things are happening. There's little bits of reggae showing up now all of a sudden, you know, that ska sound you hear, just tiny bits of it here and there in a couple songs. Again, it shows up more when you get towards signals and moving pictures, but it starts here first, I think. The sound isn't as polished as moving pictures, which to me, I think is their best sound they've ever had on an album. This sounds a little raw. This is definitely more guitar-driven, this album, the sound of it. It has that Hemisphere's up-front, heavy, in-your-face guitar. It's not Anthem from Fly By Night, but it's there, and it sets that sound different. If you're familiar with Rush's albums up through Grace Under Pressure, every two albums went together like brother and sister or yin and yang kind of thing. And permanent waves and moving pictures are the two together where they change their style and move in a new direction. And for the better, some people say for the worse, but it'd be hard to argue against this period of their careers. The lyrics are different. There's still the science fiction, but now they're a little more introspective. There's more interpersonal lyrics. He's writing about different subjects now. Yeah. We're going to tackle that black hole in Sirius X-1 at some point, or we're going to find Kubla Khan out on the plains of Mongolia, but we're also going to try to talk about free will. And this cool thing called the radio, or for that matter, an opening in the sky. Now we'll refer to it as Jacob's Ladder. These are all new things that they were doing. And so with that, let's get to the songs. And the opener of this album is probably one of the band's most well-known songs. I can't think of another song. This has got to be a top five song, whether you like it or not as a fan. It's one of their most recognizable songs. That's The Spirit of Radio. There's really not much to say other than this is a great, well-written song. The intro, every time, 
this is Rush's deliverance from Opeth for me. I don't want to hear it every time I go see them. And once the riff starts, I'm all in and I go with it. <laughs> this is uh, where you first start to hear that little bit of reggae feel, just a little bit towards the middle end of the song. And it also has one of their best kind of fan participation moments of anything they do live, which is the sound of salesmen and everyone. Yes, there's also the finger clapping things they do. And when Neil's playing on his, I don't know if it's his xylophone or what he's using there, but it sounds the same where I have the cheering on the album where literally the whole crowd erupts every live show when they do that. And that's every show, every time they play, probably since after moving pictures, they started doing that. So it's a great song. It's a grabber that brought a lot of people into the band that had not listened to them before. It's an absolute staple. I can't tell you how many times I hear it on Sirius XM all the time. And there's a reason for it. It's a great song. It's a good opener. It's a good closer. It's a great encore song. Not probably good in the middle of the set because it stands out as like, why are you playing it now? But that's my take on it. So I'll let you guys comment on the song. I know this one, of course. It's one of the radio songs. Celebrating the power and freedom of music. And as you sort of alluded to, when this song starts, it's just like, yeah! Hmm. And, uh... I don't know. I think this song is tattooed on my soul. Not that I have yeah. any tattoos, Ma. <laughs> yeah. No, it, yeah, it's just the musical piece of this and the lyrics of this go together so well. When you think of, so, you know, he's doing this this trilling kind of guitar thing that's going on and he's talking about, you know, crackling with life and it's, yeah, that's that the whole thing is crackling. Like the whole thing is just, it's, exactly what he's talking about it's the marriage of the lyrics and the music on this are really good and and john you're correct like they they played this almost every tour i I went back and looked at set lists from their various tours and they played it they played the spirit of radio on the last tour of 2015 the time machine tour in 2010 they played it on the R30 tour in 2004, the Vapor Trails tour in 2002, and the Test for Echo tour in 96, and probably numerous times before that. That's as far back as I went, but definitely a staple in their live set, for sure. This is also, if you've never been to a Rush show, you would not know this, at least not in the later years. The later years, it was a little more diverse crowd, meaning it was probably for every 10 men, there was one woman. But back when we were going in the 80s, it was like 50 men to one woman. And when this song would start, because of the just so well laid out drum parts, you could literally watch the first three or four rows of the floor of fans standing there playing the drum parts all in unison to the opening of the song. <laughs> and... It's really, it's, we laugh, but it's the truth. Literally everyone is laughing because I did that too. (laughs) Yes. And all these uncoordinated drunk dudes (laughs) are all in sync. It's amazing. It really is. All right. So I'll move on to the next song, Free Will, which is another of the newer sounding songs that just garners unbelievable amounts of radio play. And there's a reason why this song is amazing. And I like this song even more than Spirit of Radio. It contains just some of their best work. It's some of Neil's best lyrics. TR, you mentioned that Spirit of Radio lyric and music 
are married hand in hand here. It's the same with this song too. I can't imagine any other lyrics to the music that was written for this song. And it contains by far, I think the greatest moment for Alex and Getty on stage, which is the bass solo that leads into the guitar solo towards the middle of the song. That is the one minute that every hardcore fan Rush fan that's driving in their car, it's playing this, will drive around the block until that solo is done. <laughs> and I think I'm pretty confident in saying that's probably true. Or you won't get out of your car until it's done because there's just something about the playing. It harkens back to sections of the Necromancer off of Caress of Steel. It's, just, it's like a, a mini jam put into one minute's worth of time that sounds like it's going on for 10 minutes. It's fast, aggressive. It's probably the most aggressive moment on the album. It contains incredible playing. And then without kind of leaving all the previous albums behind with this new sound, they still incorporate a few things. We still get Getty's shrieking vocals that remind you of Anthem right after the guitar solo. So it's an interesting song that's new. It's different for them, but they still haven't disappeared yet with the old sound, but it's done in this new direction. It's another live staple. I haven't seen it on every tour. I've been, I think I've only missed one tour. I missed two tours since 1985. I missed Hold Your Fire. So I didn't really miss much there. <laughs> and I did miss them on when they're not reunion, but their comeback um, with. Uh, oh, Vapor Drawn Trails. Va thank you. Now yeah. I wish I would have gone to that because it's. Yeah, the, that was actually a really good tour. Yeah. At least to me anyway. I love that album. So they played it almost every tour. No, it's another staple. And I think another song that all fans have gravitated towards. Yeah, this song is definitely on the mixtape of my life. It's cringe for me to say this, but uh, these first two songs are the only ones on the album that I've actually heard before. <laughs> Don't well, hate me. That's why I picked this album, because I that's exactly what I thought of. Yeah, I, I'm not hardcore enough. I should be, though. I love Rush. But every time I try to do a deep dive... I get stuck on something and I don't move on. And just listening to you guys talk about this, I'm like, okay, I got to do it. I gotta, now I got to go back. I got to try again. I got to do another deep dive. I got to know all this <laughs> other stuff that I don't know. So I know a great many Rush songs, but I don't know enough. So from here on out, fresh opinions. Yeah. yeah. No, this, this is, so I remember hearing this song for the first time and having my mind blown not only musically, Neil's lyric, if you choose not to decide, you still have made a choice. It's yeah. like, oh, he got me, you know, like, how did totally, he do that? Totally spoke to me as a kid. Exactly. It's This is so freaking clever. I can't, even, I was drawn by the intelligence of the lyrics. And even though I'm not a lyric person, I really appreciated the fact that this band always had smart intelligent lyrics that were pretty much the antithesis of every rock band at that time who were like you said john singing about little paul or white snakes how many times can we talk about getting it on and this band like essentially never wrote anything like that <laughs> which the I first was, album <laughs> yeah exactly yeah in the mood okay got it but but yeah they took the high road every time with neil and the lyrics were thoughtful intelligent and thought provoking and free will is a great example of that. And I've always just really, I've always been amazed that this song 
got popular in terms of like when you think of it lyrically like just thinking about like the other songs that were popular at this time lyrically you wouldn't peg this song to be a popular song just because of it, it, the lyrical content of it now it, it rocks right it's there's no question and as you said john like that solo piece right there and there's like the dive bomb guitar stuff that's happening it's awesome and just incredible and does harken back to their older material as well as like you said getty going up for the real high notes at the end of that solo but yeah it just it you wouldn't think that this would be a popular song but yet it you're right it's been on the radio for 40 plus years and it's still going strong now and yeah it's tremendous so we move to the third and final song on the first side because these were sides when we were kids sure. side a and side b and that is the song jacob's ladder before i go any further one thing that stands out about this album is every name is cool you can't get any cooler <laughs> yeah, that's true think about it permanent yeah. waves spirit of radio free will jacob's ladder and i'll mention the other three in a, in a coming up there's no like love titles this is not slided in from White Snake, where it's like every song has love in the title. There's no goofiness to these songs. They all sound intelligent. And I think that's what rubbed some people wrong back in the day. But they didn't realize this, this band is full of goofballs. That's what's really <laughs> funny about all this. All right. So back to the song, Jacob's Ladder. I mentioned before, a lot of fans know Rush for two songs off this album, Spirit of Radio and Free Will. If you are a hardcore fan, and I mean... Mm -hmm hardcore and i'm being pretentious when i say that yes i'm also self-deprecating at the same time <laughs> and tr knows what i mean by that because we all have such strong opinions about this band off of this album this is one of the two songs i always think of first yep jacob slaughter is just massive it's dark it's slow and prodding to begin with and it's all about a hole in the sky that's literally all it's about. It's There's no march of armies like it sounds like at the beginning. It sounds like you're getting ready for battle. And it's just you're building up like, oh, my God, we're going to go into battle. And Jetty's leading us there and the sky opens up. No, that's it. It's just about the sky opening up. And we called it Jacob's Ladder because that's what Jacob's Ladder is supposed to be. And it's a funny twist on the song, but it harkens back to their old sound without sounding like the old sound. It doesn't sound like a Farewell to Kings, even though the synths kind of remind you of Farewell to Kings. It reminds you of Xanadu a little bit. But this is a new Rush sound. They don't get rid of their old sound. They don't drag it kicking and screaming on this album. They say, hey, come along for one last ride. We're going to finish out with moving pictures, but just come along with us. Let's see what we can do. And in the process, they created two epics, I think. Now, it's not an epic in terms of time. It's only seven minutes long. But it's an epic in sound. TR, you're, you and George are the guitar players, but this guitar sound is just so big and yeah. ominous and dark. And it, as he plays through during the verse, which there's no lyrics, obviously, because there's sparse lyrics on this, it like changes like every certain amount of measures on the song. And then it becomes even more ominous and more dark and bigger and faster. And not fast with speed, but just you feel like your heart rate is pulsing and going up. I absolutely love this song. It's one of my favorite songs from Rush, not just as a deep cut, but it's probably my top 10 of all time Rush songs. And I waited 40 years to see this live because they only played it, I think, 
on the Permanent Waves tour. I don't think they even played it. They may have played it in the Movie Pictures tour. Yeah. And that was it. Yeah. Done until the final tour. Yep. And while it didn't sound as good because Getty's voice wasn't great, even though it's not singing that much, they played it a little slower. Highlight of 40 years of seeing Rush live. It really was. Yeah, I'm with you on that. And I agree. Like this song to me has the most, it sounds the most like hemispheres to me. Like Mm. the stuff that they were doing on hemispheres, you get a kind of a feel like that. But unlike hemispheres, somehow everything sounds tighter on this album. And I think they reeled a lot of it in on this album to make everything more taut and tighter and more concise. And it's just another example of how this band evolved over time. Because when, when you listen to the first album and you listen to the last album and you listen to, you know, any set of albums in between the tonal qualities that the styles of this band it was constantly changing. And this is just another example of them evolving. And when you think about the late seventies, the, like you said, the prog and the excesses that were going on at that time, they read the tea leaves. And I think they understood that that was unsustainable. And, and this album is a very good example of that. Even though we're only talking about six songs here, everything just sounds tighter and sounds like they really made a conscious effort to, to pull it all in a little more and just the sound of the drums, everything just sounds tight, like just really tight and crisp. Like this whole album, just to me, you mentioned it sounds rawer than moving pictures, but I think there's a crispness to this album that, that even though they've always been known for this precision in the way that they play, when I listen to this album again, that crispness and that tightness really sounded even more, it just, uh, it came through to me more than it had in the past when I started really thinking about it like that. Yeah, I'm with you, John. To me, Jacob's Ladder was definitely a highlight of that last tour and is a favorite of mine from this album. Yeah, I think raw is not the best description. Sharp might be a better sound. I guess what I wanted to say is that Moving Pictures was such, it wasn't a warm sound, but it it just, it was more layered in the sound. And so it was a more expansive sound. It incorporated more. This one just seems to be a little more organic in the sound than Moving Pictures does. And I think that's why I use the word raw because it, it does have a little more oof behind it on the sound if you compare limelight which is very polished without them sounding like polished 80s you you know what i mean when i say that no it then you listen to free will and you're like oh man that that's just a more heavy that's got a heavier sound heavier vibe to it yeah and i think that's because even though they're bringing some of the synths and keyboard stuff into this album it it isn't as pervasive as you find it on albums that come after this. Right. And yeah. so, yes, you're getting more of a drums, bass, guitar sound with a little bit of sprinkled in keyboards, which may make it sound a little less layered and a little more kind of, like you said, organic, maybe. They sound still like a power trio here. 
Yes. Yeah. George, what are your thoughts on this one? This is now, we're now getting into to the part of the album that you were not familiar with. So I'm curious yes. to see what you think. So when I heard this song, I pictured them saying, okay, we got a couple radio hits in the bag. Let's do what we really want to do now. And they head down this prog path. I agree of the non-radio hits on this album. This would be my favorite. I really dig the repetitive heavy riff. And it, I was just like, wow, it wasn't unexpected. I do no rush. I'm not a complete noob, but I was just kind of like, all right, I'm down. This is cool. Let's see what else they got. And yeah, I dug it. Cool. So we flipped to side B. I only say it again because it's such a short album. And it's hard to believe that there weren't two more songs on this album. But the fourth song, which is now the new Rush sound again. We're back to that. And this is even different than Spirit of Radio and Free Will. That's a song Entree New, or for those of you who don't know, Between Us, which between is us. in the lyrics. <laughs> exactly. It's just between us. I wouldn't say this is a pop song, but if you had to say one of these songs on this album was a pop song, this would be the one. I think it fits that song structural mode a little closer. I saw that they released this as a single and I was like, I've never heard it before, but I saw on Wikipedia that it was a single. And it doesn't surprise me. It does start out with the kind of proggy intro when you got the keyboards coming in or the synths. And then it just goes in this nice kind of, and I won't say it's ska or reggae, but it has that vibe a little bit in the verse guitar parts. And it just moves that way. It's got a catchy chorus. And like George said, or I, or T, I can't remember who, which one he said it, just between us, which is the kind of catchy line in this song. I love this song. I believe it was, I cannot remember the tour, TR, maybe you remember, where they focused on this period of albums and they played this as the third song in the set right after Digital Man. I had never seen either one of those songs before. And I was just like, that's it. Three songs in. Let's call it a night. I'm done. I got to see everything I need to see tonight because I never thought I'd ever hear the song. I use these lyrics from the chorus just between us. I think it's time for us to recognize the differences we sometimes feared to show. There's Neil again. Just yeah. wow. I feel so smart knowing these <laughs> lyrics. I feel like I am smarter than other people. I'm right. an idiot still, but I felt smarter. <laughs> I use those lyrics in my my yearbook. When you had your year, senior yearbook picture, <laughs> I put those in. And what really makes this super funny is that my friend, his lyrics, or his, not his lyrics, but his quote, our high school is called The Jungle. And he wrote, real jungles don't have fences, which I thought was really funny because I really felt stupid that I put this as my <laughs> lyric. And he came up with something so clever as that. Anyway, I actually like this. I love all these songs on this album. And there's not a song on here I don't like. And I love this one too. But this is the new direction that Rush is heading. Oh, yeah, for sure. And... Again, another kind of taught song that, and this was really a switch for them because this is, this to me is their first real relationship song. When you think back, yeah, there were some other songs where they, certainly the early albums talk about some little Paul typical, yeah, little Paul and the, and that kind of stuff, but they had avoided that kind of topic in most of their lyrics for the most part. And this one, it, it was a revelation when it came out because it's, wow, this is Rush. And they're talking about, they're actually talking about relationships and how 
you interact in a relationship and how rectifying different things in a relationship. And I agree. It was unlike any other relationship song that you would hear because it has nothing to do with, yeah, baby, I want to love you. Yeah. Woo. It's, Hey, this is stuff that I'm wrestling with. And even though we think we're close, sometimes we don't, we aren't. And how do we deal with that? And for Rush, this was like really different, I think. Great. So <clears throat> for me, it certainly has a more accessible sound than Jacob's Ladder, but it doesn't have the irresistible hooks of the first two tracks. I would agree with that. So mm-hmm. it's in the middle there. I like like Jacob's Ladder better, but it's still a cool song. Yeah, uh, I agree with that completely. And it's a super deep cut. It's a deep cut for a deep cut, to be honest with you. But I love it. And man, that's the magic of this album. It's they don't. It's the spirit of radio, man. Yeah, there's no excess on this album. You don't have a chance, at least I think, to get bored with the album. My opinion. Yeah. All right, two more songs here. Next one's called "Different Strings." This is if you had to pick a ballad on the album, it's about as close as you're going to get. It's a little different from the rest of the album because it reminds me of older Rush. This reminds me of Tears off of 2112. Yep. I was you thinking that too. Or Magical off of A Farewell to Kings. It has that vibe. And that's cool because, again, it's almost like Rush is saying, hey, we're not done with that sound yet, but we're closing the book on it. We're writing the final chapter on it before we move on. And we've moved on so, you know, through Spirit of Radio and Free Will and Entree New, but we're still going to do a few things, but we're doing it on our terms. They never, It never feels like Rush ever was forced out of their sound to a new sound. They always felt like they brought it along and phased it out themselves. And they do that with this song. And I think it's a cool song. It structurally reminds me closer to the heart, the way it starts with the guitar and piano parts, and it builds up. And it, there's this really cool guitar solo at the end that's just slightly bluesy that I'm like, hey, Alex, or hey, Getty, why don't you let Alex play a little longer? You don't have to stop him at 350. Let him go to 430. Let him do a little more. He's still got the chops. And that's my only downside on this song is that I felt that had Alex done a little bit longer solo, oh, it would have been even better for me. So, <laughs> yeah, I'm with you on that. And it's funny you should mention Cinderella, man, because I, or Tears, I guess. Tears, you said it's Tears, right? Tears and Magical, the two songs. Yeah, Magical. I thought of, I, thought of, I also thought of Cinderella, man, as well. But yeah, all those kind of Lee lyric type songs like Cinderella Man and Tears felt like that this harkened back to some of that as well. And yeah, I agree that kind of outro solo is just really cool. And I agree. I wish there was a little more of that because it is that's just an awesome way to take the song out. There's some really cool Getty bass work at the end, too, that mm-hmm. he normally didn't do that type of bass work before, which I was like, man, you guys missed a golden opportunity here. And I don't think they've ever played that live. If I'm not mistaken. I could be wrong I about that. I don't I, think so. Don't, either. But I don't think, because there's actually a rush site. I don't know if it's still out there. Petition rush to play these songs. They've never played before. And every song I put on there, they still haven't played yet. So anyway, George, I didn't have a lot to say about this one. I thought it was a cool song. And I was just like, get slower and more introspective. And that's all I said. It's a little sandwiched on the album, I think, because the two 
songs that are the hardcore fan songs. They sandwich the entree new and different strings in there. That's because the following song is Natural Science. It's the epic of the album. It's the nine plus minute song. It's their longest song for the rest of their career, minus the camera eye, which is really hard to believe. Mm-hmm. This is it. You're only getting it one more time on the next album. And we're never going to play a song over seven minutes again, I think until the last album, Clockwork Angels, if I'm not mistaken, which is really hard to believe that for the next 12 albums, they all their songs are under seven minutes. For a band that has how many 20-minute songs <laughs> or at least 15-minute songs, but Natural Science is an absolute beast of a song. It's broken up into three parts. The first part, Tidal Pools, which is their kind of intro, kind of acoustic guitar with water in the background sound, which kind of harkens back to 2112 a little bit when he finds the guitar. I thought that was funny. Oh, yeah. It's just this kind of distorted, because this is their science fiction song. It's their science song, not even science fiction. It's their science song. Mm -hmm. And you have this kind of otherworldly feel. And then it moves into what I consider one of their best, sections of any song they've ever released that's the second part called hyperspace which is only two minutes and 28 seconds long but it shows some of their heaviest most complex technical playing of their career it's these are the songs that if you're a fan of bands like dream theater and all the bands that followed them these are the songs that they along with some of the rainbow stuff that really hooked them and got them into to doing this stuff and that hyperspace is just it's for them, it's brutal. It's not brutal music, but for them, it is. And then it closes with the title of the album, Permanent Waves, which is a great kind of ending. And you almost feel like it's a closer to a, a concert almost a little bit. It's a great song, nine and a half minutes. I think the first time I saw it was during the Test for Echo tour, and it just blew me away. And I couldn't get enough of it. And I always wanted to hear it every time they played it live. So great finish to this song or to the album excuse me yeah i actually it turns out i'm a liar because my notes now say <laughs> this was my favorite non-radio track <laughs> and i also said this is prog rock nerddom incarnate and i'm gonna blow <laughs> yes, your mind is. here john i'm gonna blow your freaking mind are you ready for this give it to me brother this is the harbinger of voivod Ooh. like it Interesting. Like it. Yeah, hyperspace, man. Hyperspace. It's chaotic almost. It's Rush being chaotic. Controlled chaos. It's actually mm. the best way to put it. I love it. I would not doubt that, George, that I bet this an played an influence. Yeah. Has to because they thrashed out this sound. Yeah. Totally. I love it. And it's yeah. funny that you mentioned that these two songs that you like Jacob's letter, Nat- natural science. These are the two songs, the hardcore fans gravitate towards first, not because they're the long proggy songs. I think it just represents rush that they like the most. Clearly. I know what I'm talking about. <laughs> I'm glad you came to that opinion independently. Yes. I was thinking about how I was talking about how every time I get, try to get into a deep dive, I get derailed and it's probably because you can't just binge rush. <laughs> that's like eating all the candy in the candy store you're gonna get one one aisle over and you're just gonna barf because you've had too much you have to rush should be savored like a steak 
Yeah. Throw some mushrooms on there maybe, but you know, and, <laughs> and you savor each one and then move on. You, you don't binge rush. Yeah. It's hard because this is, you it's pretty dense, right? And you, John, you're spot on. It's interesting because the three parts of this song have very distinct sounds and hyperspace. Definitely. I just remember thinking to myself, like counting it out and it's holy crap, this song's in seven. And how many songs do you hear that are like in seven and these reverse echo vocals that are going on and just, you're right. It's like this chaotic thing. And yeah, they're talking about the universe expanding and this mechanized world out of hand and it's intense. Right. And why is it intense? Did they not have houses? Sorry. (laughs) Wait, where it is. Where's the sound? (laughs) (laughs) Meanwhile, back at the justice league. (laughs) Yeah. So this is definitely one of my favorites as well. And they did play it on the test for echo tour, as well as the vapor trails tour and the snakes and arrows tour and on the final tour as well, which when I thought back to it, I always thought that this was more of a rare tune for them to play. But when I actually looked up the set lists of them, and when I say most recent, like I said, going back to 96, they actually played it on four of those tours, uh, which kind of surprised me. Because I, I thought it was something that they didn't play as often. But then looking back, I, it was like, oh, yeah, they did. I think they during the synth years. So after, I have to check if they played it during subdivisions. But I think the last full tour where they played it a lot was Moving Pictures until Test for Echo. Okay. It just didn't fit the mold at that point anymore. Well, what that's they were true. Doing. Yeah. And it's a long song, right? Yeah. I think they were trying at that point in time to to play more of their new material. And when you're thinking about like, how much time this takes you almost can't do it so i'm sure that was probably one of the reasons that it ended up taking a hiatus for a while because you could essentially play two of their songs from their later career in the time it would take to play right. all of this and it is the kind of great final way to end the chapter of the 2112 of farewell to kings and hemispheres period in this song because even though the camera eye is longer it doesn't sound like those songs when you get to moving no, pictures. It's it sounds, not, it's different. It's, yeah. And it's not as intense as this. No. I mean, this and definitely, this, and it's not as again. diverse. It, it's not as diverse as the, as this is, I don't think. And you have the kind of synth sound that dominates a little bit during the camera yeah. eye. Whereas this right. one sounds, this to me would be what Rush would sound like had they continued with A Farewell to Kings and Hemispheres on this next album. If it was like those two albums, this is the sound it would be. It still yeah. sounds like Hemispheres, but it doesn't sound like Hemispheres. It's moving in that direction. But yeah. I think it's a great send-off to say, hey, we're not ditching our past. We're just moving on to something different. So I, I really wonder how those early Sir Gawain and the Green Knight things sounded before they busted that song up into the parts that became other songs on this album. I really wonder what that, cause you know, that would have been an Epic, right? Mm-hmm. It probably would have, they really don't, the stuff I've read about that, they basically said that, yeah, they were writing an Epic based on that. And, but they ended up busting it up and using parts of that Epic song 
to to make the various songs that that came on this album and but had they continued in that vein of farewell to kings and hemispheres i really wonder what that would have sounded like because that's something we'll never know but it's a tantalizing thought for the fans of that period to to have that wonder of what would that have sounded like and what would that song have been and how long would it have been? Wait, I really, are we talking uh, about Rush or Stonehenge? Yeah. <laughs> Throwback. You asked, no, you just, he asked, the way you asked the questions, and what were they doing? And what, yeah. <laughs> anyway, I agree. I think I can speak for most Rush fans and say that I think that album, had they gone that direction, would have been epic. Yeah, because this album is epic in itself. So, yeah, I don't regret that they made this album because honestly, again, like they had to evolve and they had to tighten it up and they did on this album. And you can hear you can hear moving pictures coming, but it's they're not there yet. And no. you, you have to have this album before you can make moving pictures. Yeah. And I, it's interesting when you say tighten it up. I don't think you're at all implying that they were loose before. I think no. what it, I think what it is they are focusing, they're almost hyper-focusing on what they want to do. Not that they weren't doing that before, but they went in with a mission on what they were going to accomplish with this album. And they right. stuck to it and they and it it drives them. This is the album that changes their career yet again. You yeah. know, and it's funny to say that when I said earlier, the three albums that that changed this band, two of them are back to back because it's true. Yeah, it just is. So, uh, so I guess I'll conclude then real quick. I've gone on and on about this album enough as it is. <laughs> I think we all could. Yeah. I will say that at the time when I started listening to this album again for probably the 4,000th time, <laughs> it, it was sitting firmly in my number four spot of favorite rush albums there's 19 i do not count the covers album as a rush album i just yeah. count that as a covers album and so it just does not count in the catalog for me and this was a solid four it wasn't getting past the farewell to kings moving pictures or hemispheres those are my three and it certainly wasn't going to drop back to signals at number five however it has since moved up and it has taken hemispheres by the roots and oh. just gently moved them to number four yeah <laughs> Yeah, and this album leaves me wanting even more. But at the same time, when I finish, I'm like, it's okay you didn't do more because yeah. it's perfect as it is. So excellent. Yeah, it really is a perfect album. And I would agree. Like, it's definitely, for me, it's about the, that same kind of zone in terms of Rush albums. It's hard to, it's hard because different moods and different things, you know, you, you can get in a different mode for certain albums. And there are times when I really, I want to listen to Power Windows. And there's times when it's just like, nope, give me 2112. How about Hold Your Fire? Yeah, there's never a time when I want to listen to that. (laughs) Sadly, that is my least favorite Rush album. And I honestly, I know there are people that love that album, but I just cannot. It's just... It's the reverse of the sum of the parts are greater. No, the singular parts are better than the sum of this (laughs) album. (laughs) Yeah, that album did not work for me. No. Yeah, but yeah. All right. Here we are at the end. Thank you for listening to yet another episode. Number two is in the books. 
And make sure to go like us on Facebook so you can get updates and also any of the extra special pictures that are posted to go along with the episodes. Um, and I try to do it on Instagram too. Maybe not as frequently as Facebook, but we'll try to do it too there. Yeah, and make sure to subscribe on whatever app you're listening to us on, Apple or Spotify or whatever. And uh, we'll talk to you next time. All right. Peace. Yeah.